Okay, we have another episode, and today we have Dr. Horn. Dr. Horn, can you please introduce yourself? Gerald Horn, uh, Professor of African American Studies and History at the University of Houston. Okay, uh, thank you. And we have Derek. We have a co two co-hosts, Derek and Isaac. Can you, Derek, can you go uh, introduce yourself? Yep, my name is Derek. I'm a socialist organizer here in Berkshire, Massachusetts. Isaac. Hello, my name, my name is Isaac Jasper. I am a Afro-Indigenous decolonial Marxist and the host of the Indigenous Nightmare podcast. And you're Loni. <laughs> yes, yes, Loni. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Rick. I'm Comanche. I have an Indigenous People's Law degree from the University of Oklahoma, and I host this podcast, Decolonized Buffalo. And for the first uh, question for Dr. Horn, um, I would ask, you know, as an Indigenous person, Whenever I speak to about to non-natives, I always notice there's uh, historical misconceptions about native histories. Uh, my question to you is, what are some misconceptions about Black history that most people have when you speak with them? Um, yeah, thank you. Well, I would say that the major one, and it is major, is that Black people supported the formation of the United States of America in 1776. What's interesting about that is that even some of our, quote, friends, unquote, on the left, uh, labor under that misimpression. And in doing so, they distort their own ideology. Our friends on the left, they tell us repeatedly, some would say ad nauseum, that the class question is central. All right, fair enough, I'll accept that. Well, if you look at the enslaved Africans as unpaid workers, which is basically what they were, and if you see them as an oppressed class, then why would they engage in class collaboration and side with their oppressors, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry, that murderer's row of thieves and land grabbers and genocidaires, why would they side with them? Particularly since we know that after the land grabbers and slavers triumphed, what happened is that the colonizing power, uh, speaking of Britain, then began to evacuate uh, many Black people who sided with them uh, to freedom and uh, Sierra Leone, some in London, et cetera. Now, when you say that, of course, <laughs> what, what happens, our friends on the left, they, they defend the United States from the right and then attack from the left. And so when you bring up the historical fact that uh, Black people did not side with their oppressors, then they begin to say, oh, they were royalists, they were monarchists. They even accused me of being a royalist and a monarchist, and I'm just telling what happened. Their, their, their beef really is with Black people and their choices in the 18th century. And of course, historically, in terms of misconceptions, uh, Black people have oftentimes sided with the real and imagined antagonists uh, of those who rule in Washington, uh, be it indigenous, uh, for example, I talk about that in my latest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism, uh, be it uh, Britain once again during the War of 1812. Recall that in August 1814, when I should also say that the Blessed Soul, the great indigenous warrior Tecumseh was on the same side as the Blacks and London trying to overthrow the colonial regime. And that did not work, but the Black people and the British, they burned down the White House in eight, August 18, or burned it partially down and sacked Washington in August 1814. And then many of them uh, fled uh, to freedom in Trinidad and Tobago, where there are descendants continue to reside. And of course, if you look at the third stanza of the fabled national anthem, the so-called Star Spangled Banner, you see in the third stanza, the enslaver who penned the lyrics, Francis Scott Key, 
denounces in no uncertain terms the Black population because of their re reluctance and refusal to uh, side with the Yankees. And so th this continues. It continues until the 20th century with some Black nationalists, uh, for example, being pro-Tokyo, uh, Black Marxists being uh, pro-Moscow. Uh, the question today, of course, is that after all of this pressure that was put on the U.S. ruling elite by the Black population, which led to what I call the Compromise of 1954, when the United States made an agonizing retreat from the more egregious and horrible aspects of Jim Crow, uh, leading to what we have today, uh, the question is, were those concessions sufficient to ensure that going into the 21st century, Black people would no longer feel the need to side with the real or imagined enemies of the United States of America. And right now, that's the $64 question. Thank you. Does anybody have a follow-up question, Isaac or Derek? Isaac, I was just in email touch with you. Should, I, should we admit that? <laughs> yes, yeah. I was, I, was going to bring, I was just going to bring that up. Uh, um, so for one, thank you for um, for wanting to be on my podcast, um, which the, these individuals will will all be a part of um, as well. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't have any follow up questions. I, I just want to, you know, outline for the individuals that are going to be watching this is that um, analysis and historical analysis uh, especially is key. Um, when when we talk about these things like misconceptions. Um, so to the viewers, I hope you guys are listening to Dr. Horn, um, you know, and how he broke down and gave, you know, gave examples, you know, that, you know, really, you know, stand out for themselves. Uh, so thank you. Yes, and, you know, as for misconceptions as well, like um, I talk about like uh, indigenous history and especially within Mexico, and I, I combat, uh, uh, you know, elements within the Chicano academics. And I try to bring up Black history in Mexico. And I get brought up like comments as like, you know, Black history in Mexico is it's not that it's not that important or it was insignificant. I tell them, no, it was a very important part of history of Mexico. I think in your book, which I read recently, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, um, it was that uh, you wrote that within 1576, there were more uh, um, Africans in Mexico City than the West Spanish settlers, and to me, I was like that shows how the, you know how how important Black history is not just in the U.S. but throughout Latin America. Hmm. Well, it's interesting as we speak. I'm reading a book that uh, I would recommend to your audience, and it's by George Reed Andrews, Reed R E I D Andrews of the University of Pittsburgh. It's called Afro Latin America. 1800 to, I can't think of the closing date, but uh, he, uh, he talks ab about the Black population uh, in the Americas generally. And what, what's striking, he wrote a book earlier on, on the Black population of, of Argentina, of Buenos Aires, actually, and how they once were considered to be a significant part of the population. But what happens over the decades and over the centuries is that many of them are killed off in wars. And then uh, there's uh, migration, particularly from Italy, to the point now, if you go to Argentina, the cliche is that an Argentine is a, an Italian who speaks Spanish and thinks he's British. And in Mexico, for example, which I talk about once again in my book on Texas, uh, that book should really be considered a sort of dual history of Mexico and Texas, because Texas, as you know, used to be a province of Mexico until there was a secession of the uh, English-speaking settlers in 1836, uh, leading to an independent state, the Republic of Texas, which became a major slave trading and Indian hating enterprise until it was forced by pressure, pressure from the indigenous, particularly the Comanches, 
uh, I should say, the indigenous population we refer to as the Comanches, but not only the Comanches. Uh, for example, the Cado, C-A-D-D-O, as I talk about in the book, had an interlocking directorate with the black population. And so the independent Texas couldn't stand the pressure. And so they joined the United States in 1845, uh, where they still reside. But what's interesting about Mexico is that during the Republic of Texas phase and the reign of Texas as a U.S. state, you had thousands of enslaved Africans who escaped to freedom in Mexico. That was one of the bones of contention between the settlers on this side of the border uh, and Mexico, because Mexico circa 1829 had abolished uh, African slavery under a president of African descent, uh, speaking of Vicente Guerrero. And that, actually, that's, that's one of the differences between uh, a good deal of what we call Latin American history and uh, U.S. history. Uh, because in a good deal of Latin American history, if you look at the struggle against Spain, you see that uh, folks like Simon Bolivar, who was, of course, the national hero of Venezuela, and to a degree, a national hero in neighboring Colombia as well, uh, unlike George Washington, uh, he sought to move away from his enslaving roots in order to fight the Spanish. George Washington, of course, uh, remained a slave owner to his dying day. In fact, there's a book about this enslaved Black woman named Ona or Oni, O-N-E-Y or O-N-A, Judge, who escaped from George Washington when he was serving as president in the then capital of Philadelphia. And he was put, George Washington was putting advertisements in newspapers. He was tracking her down. He wanted his property back. And that's the contradiction that a lot of our friends on the left don't want to acknowledge. They, they, try, to, <laughs> they try to suggest that the United States was some sort of abolitionist enterprise from day one, even though the Black population, the enslaved population, increases exponentially between the creation of the United States in the 18th century and the U.S. Civil War in 1861, despite the fact the United States quickly becomes the captain of the international slave trade to both Brazil and Cuba in succeeding decades after its founding. And of course, I should mention as well that what triggers Washington in particular is something that Native American historians have focus on. And by the way, Ned Blackhawk of Yale, who is an enrolled indigenous person, has a book coming out in a few months. And I hope he deals with this. I think the book is called The Rediscovery of America. And that is that what helps to trigger the revolt against British rule is not only uh, the, the Black question, but it's the indigenous question. Because That is to say, if you look at the Royal Proclamation of 1762-1763, Britain had had it up to its keister in fighting indigenous populations so that land speculators like George Washington can profit. And so they were trying to tell these settlers that, look, you know, we're not going for that. And of course, what the settlers do is revolt. Now, returning to Mexico, uh, you not only had a president of African descent in 1829 who abolished slavery, but in the run-up, once again, to Mexican uh, secession from the Spanish Empire, uh, Black people play a, an instrumental role, which is how you wind up with a president in 1829, 200 years before, more or less, before Barack Obama gets elected in 2008. And then on the Caribbean coast, uh, particularly Veracruz, uh, you have a, a remaining Black population, uh, although like Argentina, uh, over the decades and over the centuries, a demographic change has reduced the percentage of the Mexican population that's of African descent. And then, of course, I should mention all the Black Americans who fled to Mexico, not only the, the enslaved population in the thousands, which I mentioned a moment or two ago, but post-slavery. Uh, you have an influx of Black people from the United States fleeing U.S. apartheid, fleeing Jim Crow. Some of you may be familiar 
with uh, Langston Hughes. He's a well-known Black American poet. His father migrated to uh, Mexico, for example. In my book, Black and Brown, African Americans, the Mexican Revolution, I talk about these Black people, including Jack Johnson, the heavyweight boxing champion uh, born in Galveston in the 1870s, uh, who runs afoul of the U.S. Authority, authorities on trumped-up criminal charges, and he flees to Mexico as well. So uh, this is not an uncommon phenomenon, and I trust that you will send this snippet of our conversation to some of your Chicano friends who have questioned or have questions about the Black presence in Mexico. Thank you for that. <laughs> and the next question will be asked by Derek. Yeah, thank you, Gerald. Uh, first of all, I want to say I really appreciate the uh, the 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 uh, your phrase, the compromise of 1964. I think 54, that's... 54, 54. Sorry. And, and just in general, your phraseology, uh, I'd like to uh, appreciate um, all the, the phraseology you use. I think it's really important uh changing the conversations in that way uh and uh, so uh, first of all thank you for your contributions to history and political thought uh i see in your work the necess necessary historical framework to understand ongoing contradictions in this settler colony we call the united states i believe it's important to have a full understanding of history to know how to organize for socialist liberation for what seems like the past century, there's been a divergence in the American left, uh, quote unquote, American left, regarding the answer to both the national and colonial questions. On one hand, there's the anti-colonial liberation camp uh, led by indigenous and black comrades looking to abolish the settler colonialism, uh, reestablish sovereignty for the more than 500 native nations whose land is being uh, illegally occupied by the United States as well as establishing sovereign nationhood for descendants of Af African slaves, as we know the Black Panthers were uh, attempting to do. Uh, on the other hand, there are many primarily Euro-Americans who seem to think that the American national identity can be rehabilitated. Uh, they look to reform the American nation into a socialist United States, quote unquote, uh, and generally obfuscate the colonial question. What's your answer to both the national and colonial questions as they pertain to organizing around socialist national project here in the United States? Well, thank you for that. And I think that ultimately we're going to have to have what happened in the settler colony once known as Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Recall that there was a liberation conflict war uh, beginning in 1965 when the European settlers sought to secede, not unlike 1776. It led to a war. And then, this is my point, it led to roundtable negotiations and discussions in London, the Lancaster House talks. I talk about this in my book on Zimbabwe entitled From the Barrel of a Gun. And I think that ultimately, we're going to have to have Lancaster House talks in London, perhaps since part of this land was formerly Spanish territory, perhaps we'll have simultaneous discussions taking place in uh, Madrid as well, uh, perhaps even Paris as well, since it formerly uh, occupied uh, what is now referred to as Louisiana. And it's going to have to lead to some sort of justice and reparations up to and including, uh, as happened in Zimbabwe, the expropriation of the occupying forces and the settlers. Now, obviously, this is going to be a massive task, and obviously, it presupposes a totally different global correlation of forces than what is obtaining today when the United States purports to be 
a global superpower. Uh, this possibly could happen at some point in the 21st century, uh, given, as Lenin once said, that uh, at some times it seems as if change doesn't come in decades, and then at other times it seems that change comes within days or weeks, and hopefully it'll be the latter with regard to justice to the exploited and the oppressed. Now, I should also mention a couple of other points. One is that, uh, once again, in my book on the Mexican Revolution, I talk about the Plan de San Diego, when the indigenous and the blacks on this side of the border were purportedly conspiring alongside foreign powers, perhaps Germany and Japan, to reclaim the Southwest and establish independent indigenous and black states, and of course, uh, evacuating the settlers. Uh, as history today has suggested, uh, that plan did not succeed. And with regard to your previous point, uh, I should say that uh, if you look in the magazine called Convergence, you, you'll find it online, you'll see a piece that I wrote entitled Against Left-Wing White Nationalism, because I think that unfortunately a lot of so-called left-wing thought in the United States is basically just a left-wing form of white nationalism. And, and as I said in my opening remarks, really doesn't even deal with the class question, even though that's supposed to be their calling card. <laughs> so, and then further, uh, probably next year, uh, I'll publish a book entitled Arms Struggle? Question uh, mark. Panthers, communists, and black nationalists in Southern California in the 1960s and 1970s. Because uh, one of you mentioned the Panthers and their debate and discussion about internal colonialism and their attempt to launch armed struggle, which, shall we say, may have been premature. But what I'm trying to do in this book is to lay out a roadmap <laughs> to look at what they did that worked and what they did that didn't work. Uh, and hopefully that'll serve as a blueprint for comrades of the future and of the 21st century. Does anybody have a question? Oh, now go ahead. So go ahead, Derek. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for that. Uh, I knew you would have a a historical precedent uh, for for that with the with those Rhodesia, right? Um, yeah. Those. Thank you for that response. And uh, and I'm highly anticipating that book. Right on. Isaac, do you have a follow up question? Um. No, I I didn't. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so I kind of have a follow-up question. You know, you talk about like, um, you know, these like left-wing white nationalists. And we hear, you know, the younger generation, we call them Pat Sox or Patriotic Socialists, you know, because they advocate for American nationalism to liberate indigenous and black communities, uh, which I, I personally don't agree with, right? Um, and I advocate for indigenous sovereignty, but, you know, um, do you feel like um, it, I don't know, I, I feel like maybe it's more of a comment and a question, and maybe you get your thoughts on it, Dr. Horn. I feel like a lot of these, you know, patriot, you know, Anglo-patriarch socialists, like they have a really shallow view on his on history, you know, American history, and especially black history, and especially indigenous history. And it, it leads it leads them to have these ideas that's like almost like class reductionist, like, you know, which leads them to be like, again, think that the American uh a colonial project is salvageable, but I don't think it is. Um, do you feel like you encounter a lot of these people, you know, oh. on the left or? <laughs> do I encounter them or they hate me? <laughs> As about, just yesterday, one of those folks called me a traitor and a counter-revolutionary. In past weeks, uh, I've been termed a liar, a fraud, a racy sensualist, 
And those are the kinder terms that have been ascribed to me, quite frankly. Uh, but this has all been on Twitter, needless to say. But fortunately, uh, Black Twitter rose to my defense and beat some of these folks back. But yeah, the, the, these people, they're not appreciative of my work, to put it mildly. But to look at it objectively, however, which is what I tried to do, uh, in previous books, and certainly in the book that I just referenced that hopefully will be published next year on Southern California, I talk about political repression, particularly against the left. And I think that that political repression has been so fierce. I mean, you don't have to study the Panthers to know about what happened to them, for example, that it has really destabilized the progressive movement and the left movement ideologically. And I think that has hampered us all. Uh, what I mean is, is that if you want to be a good tennis player, for example, it's helpful to play against other good tennis players. Or if you want to be a good basketball player, it's helpful to play against other good basketball players. That's why certain schools, year after year, attract the best players, because people feel they can raise their game. And so likewise, it's difficult for any of us to be ideologically sharp in such a backward country, which has come into being based upon a towering mountain of cadavers of the indigenous and the Africans amongst others. And so I think it hampers us all. But one of the points that I've been making in some of my work is that fortunately our fate is not wholly determined by the correlation of forces domestically. Uh, some might argue that more so our fate is determined by the correlation of forces globally, internationally. And there is room for optimism. Uh, there, th 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 in some ways, is the missing link with regard to our struggle. Uh, you've had a, a certain resuscitation of acknowledgement of this factor among in certain Black circles. I mean, for example, you see more outreach to the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. You see uh, more unwillingness to succumb to the propaganda concerning the antagonists of the United States, be it uh, Cuba or Venezuela or countries too numerous to mention. And th that, that's a sign of, of, of optimism. That's a sign of hope for the short term and the long term. Derek, I think you had your hand up. Yeah, yep. I I just wanted to uh, comment that I I uh, have have a lot of the same thoughts on that. That uh, it seems with the um, seemingly e seeming end of uh, of U.S. global hegemony seems to be the the conditions in which these uh, we can progress uh, in those terms. Well, sure. I mean, and you know, it's it's happening when we speak. And back to that point about how change can come rapidly. Uh, I've been giving commentaries most recently on Black Agenda Report this evening, assuming they play it on KPFA in Berkeley at uh, 7 p.m. Pacific, where there's a possibility we may be on the cusp of World War III, believe it or not. Now, of course, the bad news is that could mean the extinction of all humanity. The good news is that uh, such a titanic, profoundly disruptive development uh, could be a catalytic factor in bringing the destabilization of the U.S. ruling elite and the reshuffling of the deck domestically. 
perhaps bringing those Lancaster House talks I alluded to uh, within our lifetime. Thank you. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, me, Derek, and, and Isaac, we've all encountered this, like, Anglo-white, you know, quote-unquote leftists that, you know, always are telling us, like, telling us that we're, like, race reductionist and, you know, sidelining Black black liberation, sidelining Indigenous liberation. And it's just, like, for us three, you know, uh, we're, <laughs> we're always talking about this, and it's so frustrating. But Isaac, give your hand up. Yes, I, um, thank you for for outlining that, uh, Dr. Horn. I wanted to to kind of bring this up too, um, in hopes it's it's kind of more or less like a comment that correlates with what you know Rick was was speaking to. Is um, I, I find that there is a very very big problem with individuals who, more or less, um, are like in other countries that try and take space away from individuals who are indigenous here. Um, by trying to dictate uh, what they feel is a form of liberation. And I've always known, and I'm Afro-Indigenous, so I have to understand through a historical material analysis that my father comes from transatlantic chattel slavery. Um, his ancestors do. My mother comes uh, through uh, Pacific, what I call Pacific uh, chattel slavery through the her ancestors, through the mission system, me being a Loni, um, you know, a Rumaitush. Uh, so you know, I, I I constantly get put in a situation where space is taken, um, individuals hear, you know, you know, opinions or ideas about, you know, uh, liberation or, or tactics of which to to gain the objective of socialism. And they it consistently gets knocked down. Um, and I I I I beg I I ask the question, you know, in your lifetime, have you have you gone through gone through this, you know, where there are individuals that, you know, take space like this from you? Well, sure. You know, I live in the United States. Oh, by the way, um, where I forget, you, you, you should look at the book by Benjamin Matley of UCLA on the indigenous question in California. And also the book, uh, an Afro-Indigenous history of the United States. The guys at UCLA, uh, too, I can't think of his name, but I interviewed him actually on KPFK, uh, Los Angeles, the Pacifica station. You, you probably can find the interview online. But sure, you know, that, that's part of the struggle. I mean, that's that's part of residing in, in a backward country. I mean, it's, it's yet another hurdle to surmount. Well, thank you for asking that. I also have another question uh, for you. Um, European settler colonialism uh, continues across the globe to this day. Um, and from your books, uh, we see that there is a shared struggle between colonized people across the, you know, the world. Um, how might internationalism play a role in the struggle for decolonization uh, in the United States? Well, I've already made reference to it because I, I think that historically, um, because the correlation of forces has been leaning so decidedly to the right in this country, given left-wing white nationalism, given settler colonialism, given white supremacy, given misogyny, that progressive and wise forces have found it necessary to lengthen the battlefield. And that's what I was talking about in the first few minutes of our conversation, for example, talking about London, Tokyo, Moscow, Tecumseh, et cetera. United Nations Human Rights Council. I mean, I've already made reference to that. That's been one of the the hallmarks of my work, and it's been one of the themes that I've tried to stress today. Thank you. I have, uh, I have a question, but if anybody has a follow-up question before I ask mine. No? Okay, so... I so I had a comrade that came on the podcast, had been on the podcast, you know, several times, and he was one of the ones that actually wrote like that really nasty piece on you. And I, me, oh, uh, you know, I, yeah, me, yeah, me, Derek, <laughs> and Isaac, kind of, you know, including you know, Black Twitter, all jumped on 
this comrade, you know, Rainer. And we were, I got pretty disappointed because I got, I know this dude, right? And I was just like, what are you doing, Rainer? And, uh, but it's really disappointing seeing like uh, Anglo comrades do this kind of kind of stuff. But can you address, like, if there is there anything, maybe, you know, it's up to you, you feel comfortable with it, address these, these uh, misconceptions about you, your work, and, you know, and clarify the air on anything you want to clarify. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I've written almost like, I published almost 40 books. You think I've written, written only one book on 1776. But obviously that got under people's skin. I, I, I guess the whole question of being a race essentialist. I mean, I'm one of the few people, few people who've written book. I wrote a book called Class Struggle in Hollywood, 1930 to 1950. It's a whole, it's a book about labor struggles. I mean, don't, don't people know about the internet? I mean, don't people know about Dr. Google? I mean, don't they know about Wikipedia? I mean, how, how could you say all these things about me without even doing a simple search on the internet? I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I've written labor histories about the Caribbean. I mean, I've written probably more about class struggle than anybody in the United States. But but see, I think the thing is, if you if you're Black, and you write about black people and in defense of black people, that means you're a race essentialist, ipso facto. You're not supposed to defend black people if you're black. And I guess even if you write about the class question and attempts to construct a class unity uh, for socialism and on behalf of unions, uh, that doesn't count. <laughs> so it's quite incredible. <laughs> Excuse me for laughing, but uh, Maybe I won't laugh because of some of the, the, the verbiage has been so inflammatory. I was thinking that if these people knew where I, I am, it might lead to an attack. But I travel so much, it's hard to hit a moving target. Isaac, you had a question. Um, yeah, so I wanted to to kind of address that is that, I mean, you 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 obviously are a a professor. You teach history. You've written, like you said, over 40 books. Um, the, the fact that these individuals had the, you know, the, dis, the, the ability to disrespect you, but at the same time, uh, question like individuals like me, like Rick, um, and like Derek here, which we're speaking with, um, and then label us names and state, well, well, this is why this is, you know, that, and it, it paints this picture of why, um, people need to read, I feel, decolonial uh, theory. And so I wanted to get, um, you know, your take on like, say, individuals who call themselves a Marxist, but yet have never read a uh, Walter Rodney, uh, you know, or a Franz Fanon, um, and, you know, but but have this understanding of what they think is decolonial. And in essence, it, it's it's really just a, a, a white nationalist aesthetic um, to, to what is a continued capitalism, I feel. Well, I mean, uh, it's hard not to repeat myself by saying that on the one hand, you've had sort of um, an ideological offensive with regard to the Smith Act, for example. I talk about that in my book some on the Communist Party, where the Communist Party leadership was basically jailed in the late 1940s, early 1950s. They were routed. And of course, you could make criticisms, as I'll do in the Armed Struggle book, about uh, even during their heyday, some gaps in their understanding, shall we say, of the United States of America. I mean, for example, their political education school was called the Jefferson School of Social Science, and of course, named after that slave owner and racist via notes on the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson. So, but even uh, given these lapses, it's fair to say that the ideological offensive, which I've, which I've talked about in a number of books, um, I talked about it in my book, Class Struggle in Hollywood, I talked about it, this, the so-called race essentialist Gerald Horn wrote a book about John Howard Lawson, a Jewish American communist who was a major force in Hollywood, the founder of what is now the Writers Guild, wrote a number of, of scripts for movies, including uh, Sahara, which you can probably find online, uh, that have withstood the test of time. Um, but of course, he wound up being jailed <laughs> because of 
the anti-communist repression. And that has a lot to do with the ideological deformation uh, that has affected the U.S. left. So uh, once again, I feel like I'm repeating myself. So maybe we can move on to another area. Yeah. I mean, Derek, you have another question? Sorry. I was just going to say, I can read the last question if uh, yeah. move on. Go ahead. All right. Um, so uh, you've written so many amazing books, uh, Professor Horn, uh, and we always recommend your works to, to everyone. Uh, what are some other uh, authors and books that you would recommend as uh, perhaps foundational um, knowledge for addressing these uh, contradictions? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, oftentimes recommend the book by the subject of my biography I just mentioned, John Howard Lawson, his book, The Hidden Heritage. Um, I would recommend the books of Govan, G-O-V-A-N, Mbeki, M-B-E-K-I, who was in Robben Island, South Africa for decades, the father of Tabo Mbeki, who succeeded Mandela as president of South Africa. I recommend the novel by Shirley Graham Du Bois. I wrote a book about her. Her novel is called Zulu Heart. I recommend the uh, a number of works by the uh, British Marxist, Maurice Cornforth, just like it sounds, Historical Materialism, Materialism and the Dialectical Method, The Theory of Knowledge. Uh, the work by another British Marxist, uh, R, the letter R, period, palm, P-A-L-M-E, dot, D-U-T-T, -T, fascism and social revolution. Ooh, let's see. I'd, um, I've, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading Nick Blackhawk's book, which I mentioned a moment or two ago. I hope it doesn't disappoint. Um, the, I saw him uh, give a lecture on C-SPAN that was quite illuminating. So hopefully it will not disappoint. It's, it's so much work that, let me just stop there, you know, unless you want to point to certain categories. No, I have a, I have a follow-up question because like, you know, a lot of people talk about your work, but I, I kind of want to ask you a more personal question. Like, how old would how old were you and like when you decided this is like you wanted to study history you know write all these amazing books i mean like when when did you write your first book and did you decide you know like because obviously you <laughs> you're reading a lot of books and you know and my second question would be um you talk about a lot about you know these revolutionaries do you consider yourself a marxist too or because I don't, I don't think I've ever heard you say you're a Marxist or a communist openly. I mean, you don't have to say that, but it's up to you. But you know, are you a Marxist? Well, I'll leave that for for others to determine because you know it's, it's like the uh, like the saying so goes: everybody who says "Amen, Amen" does not necessarily enter the kingdom of heaven, as the Christians like to say. So. I think I'll, I'll let my work speak for itself. Um, and I think if you look at my work, you'll find an answer to that question. Or, for example, in terms of your other questions, uh, there's a nine-part biographical series on the Activist News Network dealing with my origins and my roots and proletarian St. Louis, son of a teamster, uh, going to the St. Louis Public Library a, a, as a youth uh, you know, growing up in Jim Crow, St. Louis, parents from Mississippi, the heart of darkness of the United States of America. Of course, footnote, uh, a lingering question that historians have not answered is why Mississippi has been so horrible. And my hypothesis uh, has been that it may have something to do with the bitterness and the bloodiness of indigenous removal, particularly the Choctaws uh, around the time of the, the so-called removal era of the 1830s. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, my life yeah. is an open book. 
<laughs> I think Derek has a question. His hands up. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Professor Horn, you mentioned earlier uh, that you had it. Uh, you interviewed an author. Is there anywhere other than? Um, yeah, I just see your uh, page on the university. Uh, University of Houston website. Uh, is there anywhere uh, where we can find uh, a a resource for your, all of your works, your interviews, uh, and uh, everything like that? Well, one source is the Activist News Network. A lot of my I do this weekly interview show on KPFK Los Angeles. Most of those are stored there. Some of them were stored on the KPFK.org worksite uh, website. Excuse me. My books, you know, they're all over the place. I mean, Amazon, Wikipedia. I mean, I'm, I'm an easy person to find. You know, it's not like I'm underground. Um, anybody who has access to an internet connection should be able to track me down. Thank you. You know, and I, and I appreciate your time. We, we all appreciate your time and your knowledge. Um, I hope people... Um, actually read your books instead of just criticizing you without reading you. <laughs> and I hope that, you know, uh, you know, this as, you know, I always state on this podcast that we need good understanding of history to make a proper analysis for the colonial theory. And I think your work is very essential to that. And it's, it, I was telling, you know, Isaac and Derek that every page and that one dawn of the apocalypse was like it could be a book on itself. It's so much information in that book, you know, with dates and and I feel like, um, you know, I, like I said, I appreciate your time and thank you. What city are you in? I live right now in Southern California. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, folks, I've done a lot of writing about the history of Southern California, you know, books on Hollywood, two books on Hollywood, um, my Mexican Revolution book deals with Southern California, uh, particularly uh, San Diego. Um, my, uh, I wrote a book on boxing deals with Southern California, my book on jazz deals with Southern California. Uh, my book on Hawaii deals with the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, which is headquartered in San Francisco, but has a strong branch in Southern California. So, so your, your, your comrades who are calling you racist centralists, they may want to, you know, thumb through some of those works and perhaps arrive at a differing conclusion. Yeah, I think maybe I, I do you have a question before we leave. Maybe ask the last question. I don't want to go over that one hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the last question I had uh, for one, I just want to say um, you you have been able to tackle a lot of things. And so I do apologize if you were asked uh, questions that were uh, the same questions, just given to in a different format. Um, it, when, when constructing this, uh, we kind of already figured that you were going to leave everything on the table, no stone unturned, uh, so that you can give a full historical anal analysis. But this is a personal question because I am a Loney, and, um, and I wanted to know, um, do you have any books or do you plan on, you know, writing any books, um, if you haven't already on the um the settler colonial state i was going to save this for our interview um, but i decided i'd ask this now um you know about like the northern even just the northern california um tribes and you know the settler colonial systems we went through through spanish uh colonialism missions. Part, part of that's in my texas book i mean if you look okay. at my texas okay. book, which i don't have by the way though. <laughs> yeah if you look at my texas book um as i tell the story uh, briefly, and as suggested a moment or two ago, so you have the secession from Mexico in 1836, the independent state by 1840, uh, up to 1845, can't withstand the pressure from the Comanches, the Caldo, the enslaved, etc., and leading to a war against Mexico, 1846 to 1848, which then leads to the grabbing of California, and of course, as Benjamin Madley talks about, uh, the aforementioned scholar leads to the genocide against the indigenous population. Now, in, in that book, I talk about the role of Texas settlers 
in the war against Mexico that leads to the session of California leading to the Modoc War, for example, M-O-D-O-C, which you may be familiar with, and uh, other wars against the indigenous of Northern California, which uh, is substantially spearheaded by the Texans, who of course also helped to start the University of California shortly thereafter. So, as I said, you know, what you referenced, uh, you can find in my Texas book, which is, is a pretty long book too. It's um, actually I have it right here. It's it's over six hundred pages, and but it has a very good index. So you can look at the index and turn. To, like, yeah, there's a big section on California in the index. Yeah, being Comanche, I'm, I'm, I really am interested in that book. So <laughs> you're Comanche, really? Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I I'm going to. I heard your interview with I think it was the Gorilla Podcast, my Gorilla oh, yeah. History. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I heard that interview, and I I heard you mention Comanches, and yeah, I was like, that's you know, people have misconceptions about us. You know, they call us like too aggressive in history, or this they call us like. A lot of like you know bad names like savages. You know we were too savage or whatever. And I, I always tell people they didn't they didn't understand the historical context and how the Texas Rangers were genocidal <laughs> towards mm-hmm. us. You know, and I, I, you mentioned that on your interview. And I, I really appreciate you bringing up the Texas Rangers and their and their role in genocide. Yeah, know? yeah. There's a lot of Comanche history in this Texas book. Um, I'm looking at the index now, and. Comanche Nation, an anti-settler alliance, Apaches and Comanches, Stephen F. Austin, the Battle of Adobe Walls, the Battle of Walker's Creek, uh, Cherokee Anne, Cholera Anne, Council House Fight, Delaware Anne, Diseases of, Early Anne, France Anne, Houston and Kickapoo, yeah, the Kickapoo, Kiowa yeah. and Lapan Apache and Marshall Skills in Matamoros uh, in New Mexico, numbers of uh, poisoning of, yeah, that's an interesting story. Rewards for scalps of runaway slaves and Seminoles and settler violence against Spain and uh, Treaty of Rabbit Creek and Treaty of Tawakana Creek and none of the treaties, of course, are observed. So, yeah, it's a lot of Comanche history in this book. Yeah, 100% when I check the book out. I really appreciate your work on, on you know, Comanche history. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's next on my list. Is yeah. Uh, and of course, yeah. you can just, if you can't get through 600 pages, just go to the index and just read about the Comanches. Oh, no, I want to read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, but no, we appreciate your time. Uh, we, we're going to end this episode right here. Uh, and, you know, Dr. Horn, I, you know, I have like goals of people to interview. We all have goals and you're one of like this year's goals and we got it. So thank you. <laughs> and I think this is also Derek's first interview. So, you know, it's very, it's an honor for, you know, for for Derek to for his first person to be you <laughs> to interview. So we really right appreciate on. that. Pretty incredible. So yeah, we're gonna end the recording right now. I appreciate everything. Thank you. <laughs>